Hello, and welcome to the Agape House of Worship weekly podcast. Through this podcast, we hope and pray that you will be equipped and empowered to live the life that God has planned for you. If you are blessed by this message and would like more information, please visit our website at www.agapehousenj.org. Thank you and God bless. Just the ability to persuade, to direct, to move someone else from where they are to where they need to be. And so I'm grateful to that. I don't have all the answers. And I think the more I get, the older I get, the less answers I have. But what I'm going to do is talk to you about my journey and also what it means, seven church growth practices. Okay? Thank you so much again for the opportunity. You guys ready? Good. Well, I like to pray before I teach, and so I'm going to do just that. Father, over these moments together in the Word, I ask that you would just do something in our hearts. That this house will never be the same again. I ask that you cause Agape House of Worship to have burgeoning influence, not only in this region, but around the world. In Christ's name, amen. Seven church growth practices. We're not growing or wanting to grow as a church for the sake of growing. We've all been given this great commission by Jesus. So imagine then in his post-resurrected state, crucified, buried, arose from the grave, he gives this final commission to his disciples, which in turn... We received. And the scripture tells us that Jesus said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is referred to as the Great Commission. A commission is a directive. It's an edict. It's not optional. You can't say, well, you know, I I don't like that one. I'll choose this one. It's not your prerogative. It's not your choice. Neither is it mine. We're called to make disciples. And in making disciples, a disciple is someone who can show others the way because he or she has first learned the way. So a disciple is a committed follower of Christ where my lifestyle, my words, my actions, my thoughts, my behavior cohere or align with this one I'm following, Jesus. And others start seeing that there's something different about you. You remind me of someone I once heard about. You remind me of Jesus. We're called to make disciples. And not just within the borders of our own ethnicity. It says of all nations. That word nation in the Greek is the word ethnos, where in the English we get the word ethnic. So go and make disciples of every ethnicity. That means anybody you touch, anybody that you know, anybody that you used to know, anybody that you want to know, they're all candidates of potentially becoming a disciple of Jesus. This is our call as a church. 
So we must ask ourselves questions then. How do we fulfill this call in this generation? In this nation? In this city? In this region? Church growth is a complex science. Most of us may not look at it. There are layers of things going on in church growth. It's a sociological issue. And it's not just theological, sociological in terms of people. How people group together. What makes us want to form a community together? What attracts us to one another? Why should I come to, to, into your world? Why should I let you into my life? You know, do, do you respect me? Do you value me? Can I learn from you? Can you learn from me? Can we walk together even if we disagree? All of those questions are packed into this issue called church growth. Now, C. Peter Wagner, who was a professor of church growth at Fuller Theological Seminary back in 76, when he wrote this book, he defined church growth as, it means all that is involved in bringing men and women who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ into fellowship with him and into responsible church membership. Did you get that? So church growth is not when you get 100 people from across the street at the XYZ church to come to your church because your music is more souped up or your preaching is more dynamic or your sanctuary looks better or your children's ministry is better. That's not church growth. Church growth is getting people from the kingdom of darkness to come into the kingdom of light and then be a part of your lives. That's church growth. It's hard. Very hard. There are questions we must ask ourselves. And Wagner lays out these seven questions. And then after we go through the questions, I'm going to just lock in on seven principles and practices that can help us grow. Can't guarantee you how much, how many. But I can say to you, if you apply these principles, you're going to experience far more success than you've ever had. And so will I. The questions that Wagner raised are the pastor. What kind of a role must a pastor play if the church is to grow? That's a, that's a significant question. You know, my wife and I, we've been married for 35 years this past July. And so, you know, in Jersey, you can get married at five years old, so I'm not that old. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't look at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> but... When you think about, you know, it says, what kind of a role must the pastor play if the church is to grow? There, I have to define who I am as a pastor and not let my congregation do it. And I have to teach my congregation how to relate to me as a pastor in my context and not the context that they may know about, read about, study about, understand, or have contemplated in their minds. And I've had to help them redefine that role of pastor. I had to do it in my own life. I remember in 2002, and I remember that, uh, that period of time, because that's when I finished my PhD. And it wasn't related to the PhD, but I, I went through a little crisis internally. And the crisis wasn't a medical one. It wasn't even a moral one. It was just a vocational one. I started struggling, thinking I, I wanted to quit the ministry. I wasn't in sin. Church at that time must have been about 5,000 people. It wasn't a lack of numerical growth. I just felt as if the church was too limiting for me. 
And it may have been my own immaturity. I felt as if the definition and the role and the expectation of a pastor did not fit all of who I was. And there's so many things churning on the inside of me that I couldn't fulfill, and I found myself frustrated. And so I didn't even tell my wife. I had three applications filled out for law school, one for Seton Hall, one for Rutgers, one for Columbia in my bag because I wanted to do that. I wanted to be a consultant in corporations. I wanted to lecture in universities. I wanted to be involved in so many areas. I wanted you know, so many different areas of life. And I remember sitting with one of my mentors, and I opened up my heart and I said, I'm thinking about resigning ministry. And he didn't chastise me. He didn't condemn me. He didn't rebuke me. He didn't correct me. He didn't scold me. He asked me why. And I told him my reasoning. And when I said that to him, he said, David, why can't you redesign Christ's church to fit who you are? I never thought of it before. I was so locked into my own internal confusion that I didn't even think about the potential of doing that. And so I brought on new people on staff who can handle different responsibilities, redesigned the church in the context of who are we, what do we do, what do we, how do we function. So I was freed up. Then I was able to do the things that was in my heart. So, you know, so, you know it, just in, you, in like one week in the life of David Ireland, I'll give you an example. I remember taking one of my staff pastors with me. I said, come on, I'm gonna, I got to you know, do some ministry uh, trips or do some trips. And so I went Friday and, and Saturday. I'm speaking in the Eastern District for the Spanish Pentecostal Church, uh, you know, in America, and, and through an interpreter. I said, come on, let's keep going. We're driving up to Boston. I'm preaching in this megachurch. Come on, let's keep going. I'm at Harvard lecturing on Tuesday to a, a national, international conference on the role of religion in American society. And so here I'm in all these different settings all in the same week, and each of the, one of those settings I felt at peace. And I felt comfortable. So I had to then recognize that the role of the pastor is very important. And I'm not trying to place myself on any pedestal. All I'm saying is that we better understand who we are and the gifts that God's given us and the assortment of gifts that God's given us. Because we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. He's given us a mind. And that mind should not be limited in one context versus another. So I want you to understand this. I'm stuck already. I haven't even gotten to this. <laughs> I haven't even gotten to this. But, 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 but I want you to see that don't put this, this rigid boundary on this institution called church and this role called pastor. Because if you do, you'll limit it. And you'll limit who you attract and what you become. I mean, I, I found myself, here I am consulting with the NBA on race relations. Well, I'm a pastor. But it wasn't my pastoral gift. It was my, my, my brain. It was my heart for diversity and reconciliation. So I'm the shortest guy in five square miles, and I'm dealing with those big guys. And so I'm in that setting. Why? Because God gave me those gifts. And it's not wrong to use those gifts to help bring people together that would normally be divided. Why can't I use those gifts? See, but the issue becomes, 
sometimes the Christian that is very ignorant limits who I am and what I am because of their perspective, not mine, theirs. And so I have to recognize I'm not going to let anybody define me. Because they'll always have a definition that's too small and too narrow and too constricting. Don't let anybody define you. And you don't have to choose one gift over another. You have a lot of gifts. Use all of them. That's why God gave it to you. So the questions that C. Peter Wagner posed to help us understand how the church can grow, another was the people of the church. I think I just touched on that. Is it possible for a church to grow if it has the perfect kind of pastor but the wrong kind of people? How can the wrong kind of people become the right kind of people? And, and I think he's using wrong and right in the context of not wrong answer, right answer, but there is the wrong kind of person in the church that doesn't allow for church growth. They're, they want the spotlight. They want the visibility. They, they always want the attention. They want to eat up my energy and consume my attention as a senior pastor because that makes them feel good about themselves. That kind of person limits the growth of the church. That kind of person, I have to have a conversation with them that's going to be very hard, very clear, very emotional, but at the end of the day, they're going to get it. And so I'm not going to be nasty or rude, but I'm going to say to them that this is the expectation. Wave at me if you got it. Good. Now the question is the church size. How big does a church need to be in order to be a healthy and growing church? There is no particular number. And we ought not to shoot for numbers. I, I've never shot for numbers. I always shoot for health. Numbers come. Structure and function is another question. How can a church be so structured that all of its primary functions are operating at peak efficiency? And the only answer I can tell you is that you have to constantly keep changing the, the structure. You have to constantly keep changing the structure. And many times I find that the biggest thing is not even the hardest thing is not even changing the structure. is helping people to rethink the structure. Because some people get stuck. This is how we do it. This is how we always did it. And this is how we need to do it. If you do it any other way, you're wrong. You're bad. You're of the devil. I mean, <laughs> so, and that limits the growth of the church. Uh, another question is, is it important that a church be composed of basically one kind of people? Or should it be a mixture of a variety of individuals? The wider, the better. And the, the homogeneous principle was something that was established many years ago in the 1960s. And that's been debunked both theologically. Because God's called us in the Great Commission to make disciples of every nation. Which suggests to us then, as Jesus prayed, that my house may be a, a house of prayer for all nations. It suggests that the house should then be a multiplicity of ethnos or ethnic groups, cultural groups, and indeed racial groups. So we realize it should be. Now, is it harder that way? Oh, yeah. Because when you're in a church that has, when it's monoracial, then if there's a problem between me and you, I never go and play the race card because I can't say you're prejudiced, you're black, and I'm black. What am I going to say? I mean, I can't play the race card. But if it's an issue where you're white and I'm black, then something happens and automatically people go to the race card when it may not be the race card. So you know, I, I just want you to understand that. And, and certainly it gets harder. I mean, I've lost more black people than I have white people over the years because black people say I'm Oreo. 
And I said, don't call me Oreo. I prefer Pepperidge Farm. Call me that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I like that kind of cookie better. If you're going to call me a cookie, call me the cookie I like. I mean, (laughs) mean, it's... It's, <laughs> I'm not trying to be silly. I'm just trying to say that uh, sometimes the issue of challenging people, because uh, and I've had to make a decision, a decision based on a theological distinction that I'm called to be ethno-conscious and not ethnocentric. Ethno-conscious, I'm conscious I'm black. Uh, I love the fact that I'm black. I'm not afraid, ashamed of being black, but my blackness is not the center of my life. Ethnocentric is when I make my, my, eth- my ethnicity the center of my life. The problem with that is that you can't be Christ-centered or Christocentric and ethnocentric at the same time. You can't have two centers. You can only have one. And so if you are ethnocentric, you're not Christocentric, then you violate Scripture. Then you're not really a Christ follower in the biblical and most uh, aligned theological way. Period. Now, you can be ethno-conscious. Paul was conscious of his Jewishness, but his Jewishness was not the center of his life. Now, for us to have that in our hearts and then move towards what that means, it means that sometimes you have to give up some friends who are not really friends. I was, at, uh, I was doing a marriage conference, and one of the other speakers, there was a primarily African-American church, and in the green room, we got on a topic of diversity, and I said, I pastor a church that's racially diverse, and she got angry because she had been victimized. I mean, every one of us has been victimized. I mean, sometimes, you know, we just don't want to say it sometimes. And so she got angry. I said, uh, I, I got no problem with white people. I said, some of my pastoral team is white and, you know, and, and Latino. I said, and the, I said, in my congregation, I'm conscious of a white guy that's sitting in my congregation had to play pay greater dues than a black guy. Because nobody asks the black guy, why are you going to that church when the senior leader is black? But the white guy has to answer that question. So when the white guy has to answer that question, I'm conscious of that. That white guy is paying, paying a greater price than the black guy to be there. So I, I just, you know, sometimes we don't think about those kinds of dynamics. But those things are very real. You know, but that's another topic. <laughs> And so a question that we pose about, we're dealing with church growth. I'm going to get into the subject in a moment. I'm just getting around the peripheral. I'm just dancing around the the focal points. The methods that we have, what kinds of methods have proved to be effective instruments for evangelism in America today? And notice the the operative word there is today. I mean, because 30 years ago, I've been pastoring since I was 24, and so that's 33 years ago. Methods have changed. Preaching style has changed. I mean, it's, the church has changed. I mean, we've changed our church so many times. Sometimes I forget my name. I have to look at my driver's license to see what the, the name is. You've changed style. You've changed presentation. You've changed, you, you've changed length of service. It's, everything changes. Why? Because culture changes. And so the way you evangelize and connect with people, and I'm going to spend more time on that particular topic, it's different than how... It may have been when you came to Christ. And if you're not careful, you'll start using the same methods or continue using the same methods that you did and used 30 years ago. And you wonder why it's not effective. And then you conclude people don't want God. It's not that. It's that you don't know how to speak to people today. So they don't want the historic God that you're revealing to them. They want a God that's contemporary, that they can connect with. 
Not that God's different, but that God, uh, you know, if Paul came here today, Paul will be sitting in this seminar. Because Paul dealt with different issues that we're not dealing with. Paul would know nothing about internet. Paul would know nothing about cyber sex and cyber crimes. Paul would be sitting right here saying, you know, how do I get online? What is online? <laughs> See, sometimes we're projecting things in the scripture that's not there. And so we want to contextualize because we have to change and grow. Amen. Amen. Then there's priorities. How can, the se- how can the several good things that churches ought to do be prioritized according to biblical principles and effectiveness for growth. So, and that is a whole seminar in of itself. Because I remember when we went through as a church, went through an exercise that was a whole day exercise. And we wanted to understand, I brought 60 people that represented a cross-section of the church. Some people that didn't, didn't know who we were, but they came anyway in terms of, that's a cross-section. I brought teenagers in, I brought some kids in, I brought some senior adults. I brought a cross-section age-wise, race-wise, demographic-wise into the, the, this setting to ask a question. We had two questions that we had to ask so we can understand. Question number one, what does Christ's church do well? And we had an eight-point definition as to what well means. Question number two that we had to pose to ourselves is that what are are our top top five competencies? So in other words, if you're going to prioritize things, prioritize your competencies. And so when we went through that and was able to distill and, and work through and, and each person providing answers and we collect answers and we got clarity as to these are our top five core competencies. A competency is something that's a natural thing that you do well. Like if you said to me, what, what's, what's something that you do well? What, what's just natural to you? You don't have to try. I can say, well, I, I naturally teach. Well, I was this high. I was teaching. Yeah, here, yeah, you want to go to the bathroom? Go this way. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, was a, I was a natural, you know, so that's a core competency. And so when you understand who you are, and then when we understand what our core competencies, we cut out all these ministries. We said we're spending a lot of money doing all these things. We don't do a good job. Let's connect with, 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 with organizations in the community. Let's send them people to volunteer. And those organizations do those things well. Let's go and send people to them. And then we stop doing those things and put money towards the things we do well. And when we pr- started to prioritize, prioritize the things that we do well, then all of a sudden, man, things happened. So it's, but it does take time to figure out those things. All right, now let's get into the core. You're on page three. Let's get into the nitty-gritty. All that was the appetizer. Let's get into the meal. (laughs) There are a number of groups that have studied church growth to try to understand what are the principles or the habits or the practices that local churches that want to grow numerically, spiritually, influentially must apply regularly as part of their practice. Of all these principles that you see here, it's almost 20 of them by four, five different groups. The ones in red color, those are seven that somehow have been tapped, picked, selected, diagnosed by all of these groups as something important. Those are the seven I'm going to look at. Catalytic leadership, 
a contributing role, changeable structures, celebrative worship, creative evangelism, caring relationships, and credible stewardship. I'll unpack in a moment. Let's look at these seven church growth practices that you find in a healthy, growing church. And they're not in any order of priority. It's just that these seven things should continue and work well. Now, I'm not using this as a litmus test to say, well, where's agape on this scale? That's not what I'm looking at. Nor should you be trying to measure yourself, rather than saying, let's look at how we can apply these things. And I guarantee you, you probably have these seven things at work in some measure, at different stages, different percentages, in each area of of your life as a church. But I'm now saying, let's bring these areas up to another level. And when you do that, do not project onto the pastors or the pastoral team, you guys need to do this. And we're going to sit back and we're just going to watch you. That's not what we do in church. You're the church. We're the church. All of us must be involved in these seven principles and practices. You shouldn't have come here today. (laughs) Then you would not have any obligation (laughs) and sometimes we don't see that as a member you need to know these things I remember this pastor was teaching and he was challenging his church he said look folks we need to get our lives together he said because every one of us he said to his membership he said every one of us is going to die one day one guy in the back started laughing (laughs) pastor stopped in the sermon said what are you laughing for he said I'm not a member I'm not a member I'm not a member (laughs) hey (laughs) We all have to do this. (laughs) The first point I bring out is catalytic leadership. Catalytic leadership is leadership that inspires others to lead. And for that to happen, that means people have to choose to follow you. Because that's what a leader is. A leader is someone that others choose to follow. I can't force them to follow me. I can't put a gun over their head to follow me. Not within a church context, because a church is a member organization. Member organization means that I self-select to come here. You don't force me to come here. You don't pay me to come here. I come here because this is where I want to come. If I don't feel like coming here any longer, I don't need to come here any longer, because you can't stop me. I'll leave. So the beauty of growing a church then, and having catalytic leadership expressed, is that you as a leader, must be able to carry yourself in such a way that people choose to follow you. And the number one trait that people look for in someone that they would follow, and I draw this from two studies that was done by the American Management Association. Both in 1986 and 1991, they interviewed 1,500 managers nationwide and asked one question. As a leader, what kind of leader would you follow? What trait do you look for in a leader that you would follow, you being a leader? 225 answers were distilled, character traits. They took the 225, because many of them were synonyms, distilled them down to the 25 that they represented. Each year, 1986, 1991, the number one trait that people look for in a leader that they themselves, a leader, would follow is the trait credibility. It wasn't him being smart. It wasn't being visionary. Smart 
was down the ranks. Visionary or forward-looking was ranked number four. Credibility was number one. What is credibility? Credibility is honesty and someone being trustworthy. In other words, you know where you stand with me. That what, that's what makes you credible. It doesn't mean that you like everything about me. But you say, well, you know that guy, he's authentic. He's real. I know where I stand with him. You know, it's, it's, that's credibility. And that's what you need to have. You're not duplicitous. That kind of leadership then becomes a leader that a person follows. So catalytic leadership then is also one that people choose to follow. One that is strategic. Strategic means that where are you going tomorrow? What are your goals for 2020? What are the goals that you have for your department for 2020? Do those goals roll up to the vision of, of agape? Does it roll up to the five-year strategic plan of this church? Does it cohere with the vision and the missional thrust of the organization? So as a leader, I'm asking myself that question of you. What is your strategy for year 2020 in your area of responsibility? If you say, I don't have one, then I'm going to say you have a problem with leadership. Now, if you say, well, I'm waiting for the pastor to tell me, I'm going to repeat my statement. You have a problem with the subject of leadership. Because if your definition is that I must go to the senior pastor and ask him, tell me, what do you want me to accomplish this year? Then that may sound like you're being loyal, but the translation, the mind of a pastor who wants to grow a church is that you're being a problem to me. Now, I'm just being, you know, I'm just, this is a, this is a drive-by sermon. I'm just hit and run. Yeah. I mean, I'm just telling you the truth because you think that you're being loyal. And many times in the churches that we grew up in, if they're small, under 100, we thought that was loyal. Yeah, I'm being in submission. No, no, no. You're being a bother because you're not practicing self-leadership. When you lead yourself, I don't need to lead you. See, it's, if, you're, if you're saying you want me to tell you, then you're becoming a docile follower. You're no longer a leader. You get all your information from me, all your guidance from me, all your knowledge from me, all your directives from me, all your vision from me, all your impetus from me, then you are draining me. You're not a leader. So I want you to, to get that out of your mind. Now, I'm not saying for you to run down the street and do the wrong thing and turn your air of ministry into a pizzeria and say, well, I just felt like this is what the church wanted. We love pizza. And so I want to make my ministry, you know, this is, this is, I'm the director of pizza ministry. Anybody want pizza? Now, that's not what I'm suggesting. What I, what I am suggesting is that you pray, get the mind of God, look around, see where the church is going, listen to the sermons, read the literature. You know what, you, what you're trying to accomplish. Put a plan together, a strategic plan for 2020, and what you're going to do in your air of responsibility, and go to it. That's what you got to do. That's catalytic leadership. So people are going to say, man, I want to follow that guy. I want to follow that gal. Why? Because they have a clue. People look to you as catalytic, and when you're practicing catalytic leadership, when you have spiritual awareness and spiritual maturity. In this church, that means something. In some churches, they don't care about the Holy Spirit. They don't care about, you know, Christ-likeness. <laughs> they don't care about that. That's not their deal. This church, that's the deal. So if you are someone that is growing in Christ and becoming more like Christ, then you're attractive to people that want to come to this church. But if you're growing less like Christ and more like the devil, then you're going to be unattractive. And you wonder how people don't want to follow me because you look like a devil. They don't want to follow you. 
And so they just, they want to follow people that's going to be like Christ. So it's catalytic leadership is someone that has proven results. I want to follow people that have results. Show me a person that has results. That's very attractive to me. Because, you know, a lot of people talk. When I played baseball in high school, you know, the high school baseball coach used to say to us teenagers, because you know how we were, we talked all kinds of stuff. We think we're better than, than all the professional players. The only reason why we're not on the Yankees is because they haven't seen us play yet. <laughs> and so, you know, we're, we're delusional. But the coach said, he said, don't tell me what you can do. Show me. And that burst our bubbles. Why do you got to say that? Why can't we just tell you? Because when you talk to people, they, they talk such a good talk. I mean, you listen, you, you listen to people. They, they talk a good talk. That's why I love preaching in New York. I grew up in New York City. And, and so I love New York. New York just tells us straight. One of my guys, he was finishing up his degree in seminary, and so he did his internship in New York City. In fact, specifically in the Bronx. Got up to preach first time. When he finished, one of the young adults jumped up and said, That's it? That's all you got? Don't tell me that's all you got. Come on, man. This is in front of the whole congregation. Don't tell me that's all you got. Please don't tell me that's all you got. See, that's my kind of preaching. That's, see, that's, that's how you do it. See? <laughs> see, there's something about that. See, it's just real. It's just real. You <laughs> see, they want to follow someone who has proven results. That's what you got to do. <laughs> I love preaching in New York. <laughs> I mean, Christians boo you if you can't preach. They don't, they, don't, they don't have a problem with that. They don't see if it's wrong. They don't think it's wrong. <laughs> if you think you're a preacher, go there. That's your proving ground. <laughs> if you can't preach there, <laughs> in fact, my, we had uh, this uh, pastor's... <laughs> Pastor's prayer time in uh, the Poconos, and it's uh, pastor, the concerts of prayer, and they pray in the Poconos every year in January. And so, about a couple of hundred pastors, about maybe 80, 90 percent of them from New York, and the others from New Jersey and Pennsylvania would go out there. And so, my wife and I, and I'm, I'm a staple <laughs> out there, so this is her first time. And, and they, you know, my wife is a preacher as well, so they had her up preaching. And so, before she got up to preach, now this she was the only woman speaker. And so before she got up, one of the New York women just jumped right in front of her right before and stood this close and said, you know what you got to do, right? <laughs> and so my wife is a Jersey girl. She's looking at me. Saying, I said, you know what the woman's telling you? Hit the ball. You got to represent what you do speaks to all the women here. So the woman just looked at her and said, you know what you got to do. Just said, <laughs> Oh, yeah, I love New York. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's a different ball game. It's just. <laughs> and she hit the ball. She knew what she had to do. <laughs> and so when you think about the seven church growth principles, one of which is catalytic leadership, you cannot grow a church without that. You got to fire people up. If they're not fired up, they're not coming back. A second requirement and practice is celebrative worship. And I don't mean loud, because sometimes we think celebrative means loud. Who said that? 
Celebrative worship is worship that's planned. It's well prepared. And when I say planned, it means that the songs have some theme to them. You know, you're not all over the place. You're not talking about Jesus died. The next song, you know, you know Jesus was, you know, he said, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. You're all, I'm confused. Where is he? Is he arisen? Is he in a tomb? Where, where is he? I mean, so the celebrative worship is that the worship team, they have prepared songs knowing where are we going sermonically. I mean, I have a sermon calendar where I'm forecasting where I'm going. So that assumes that I have the mind of God for our church. And so I'm communicating. I preach in series typically. And so they understand where am I going sermonically. And they have songs that are celebrative and up beat and upward and far-reaching and songs that, you know, worship should have highs and lows. It should take me through an array of emotions where I have a chance to have an encounter with God. Not all songs that are fast. And, and you know, I feel like, man, God, I'm tired after worship. <laughs> I mean, someone, can you, someone pass me a towel? I mean, thank God. I mean, it's, it's, it's like calisthenics. I just finished working out. No, that, that, that doesn't mean the worship is celebrative and, and, and impactful. And sometimes the worship leader doesn't know how to lead people in the presence of God. They're driving people in the presence of God. Shepherds lead. That's why the scripture tells us in Psalm 23, you lead me into, you know, through the valley of the shadow of death. Shepherds, when they're leading a, 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 their flock, you'll see the shepherd in front leading. One person showed us a picture of a flock of sheep and someone behind, behind them driving them. And they said, see, you're wrong. Shepherds drive. I said, that wasn't a shepherd. That's a butcher. They're leading them to the market to slaughter them. You got the wrong function, wrong role. And so what I'm pointing out to you is this. That you have to see as a worship leader, your job, and I'm not picking on you if you're the worship leader, but your job is to lead the congregation you're, in essence, having them eavesdrop in on your worship time. So if there's no private times where you've sought God and the worship team has sought God, then it's very tough to come on a Sunday morning to lead us to have an encounter with God when you yourself have not had a personal encounter during the week. So a celebrative worship, it's planned. When I say planned, there's specific songs you've picked and selected that have themes to it, clarity to it, that's rich in theology. It helps me understand who God is and who I am in the context of my relationship with God. It is also, it's, it's technically good. That means you want people that can sing well. Like I jokingly say, I'm not a singer. If I sing, I'll clear the whole place out. That's not my gifting. And so, you know, my congregation knows that because I joke about my lack of gifting in that area. And my wife, who's the worship pastor, she used to tell me, she said, honey, don't sing in the mic. Don't sing in the mic. Don't sing in the mic. You know, you're, yeah, so, so she, because, and then you should see people when they have to go through, they have to go through a testing in order to be in the worship team. And so sometimes when I'm walking in the hallway, I see a bunch of people sitting in chairs and they're, they're sweating. I said, what are, you, what are you doing here? You have a counseling appointment? No, no, no. We're, we're trying out for the worship team. We're going to get tested to see if we can sing, we're going to play, and they're sweating. Because if they can't sing to a certain level, commensurate with the other singers, they tell them, Thanks, but no thanks. We said, I thought they were godly people. 
Yeah, they are. But that's not the requirement only to be in the worship team. You got to be godly and you can sing well. <laughs> and play well. If you can't play well, you only got one note and you're playing that one note and you say, the devil, the devil is after you. No, no, it's not the devil after you. So the worship has to have that. I remember when our church turned the corner in that area. We first began about a year into the formation. I remember sitting, we were meeting in the Holiday Inn in Springfield, New Jersey on Route 22 in a multi-purpose room. And I'm sitting on the front row. And I remember saying to myself, man, this worship's boring. And when I said that, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and just messed me up. And the Holy Spirit said, it's because of you. Why do you have to tell me that? I could hardly preach that day. And I'm supposed to be a preacher. I mean, because I'm convicted. And the Holy Spirit says, because of you, why? I was so stoic. I was so rigid. I was so non-engaged in the worship myself, gesturally and even lyrically, that I'd set an atmosphere by my behavior. And I remember, I'm 25 years old, I, I, I just didn't know what to do with that. And I remember coming back next week to the church, about maybe 20 people, 25 people, and I said, I want to apologize to you. And everybody's sitting at the edge of the seat wondering, who did I sleep with? What did I do? <laughs> I said, I want to apologize to you because I've not been a good example of a worshiper. And I ask for your apology, for your forgiveness. And I, I did. I didn't even know I was stumbling on something. And then I took a number of weeks walking the church through the tabernacle of David and what it meant to be a worshiper of God. I was preaching to myself and everybody else. And that took a major shift in our culture. Another turning point, fast forward now, we had bought the Montclair Cathedral and you know, things, you know how things are here, it's expensive. And so we looked to cut corners, and we cut corners on music equipment, microphones, all, you know, PA system. And I remember having a guest speaker, and he leaned over to me, and he was a friend, a mentor, and he said, David, you need to invest more money into your PA system and music equipment. Because, and he said this to me, he said, no, I'm not a musician, I, I'm, a, I'm the left brain guy, I'm not right brain, I'm left brain, you know, put me over there in the, with the books, put me over there with the science, put me over there with the, you know, with, with, with the, the geeks, yeah, I'm at home, put me on the artist, I feel like hey, something's wrong with those people, and they're weird. <laughs> so, you know, so he said to me, you need to invest more money with the PA system and musical equipment because you cannot attract good musicians because they've been studying their whole life playing their instrument. And if they can't play their instrument in the context that makes the sound good technically and acoustically, they'll never be a part of your worship experience. We sank a lot of money into that. Why? Because not because we want to spend money, but because celebrative worship is a critical ingredient to grow the church. And so it's just not just having gifted musicians and singers. It's making sure the sound is good acoustically and that it attracts them. 
So I want you to see that it's planned, it's choreographed in terms of prepared, it's bathed in prayer, it's Holy Spirit driven, but there's a technical side of it which you should not ignore. Don't think that when I just come there, I'm just being led by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit doesn't mean unprepared. Because some people, they make, that, they make that seem synonymous. No. There's a supper with the lamb that was planned thousands of years ago from the beginning of time. So it's not unprepared. It's prepared the best way you know how, but you leave space for the Holy Spirit to infuse that worship experience. Third ingredient is creative evangelism or cultural relevance. In other words, creative evangelism is when you're sharing your faith with outsiders, with irreligious people. It's not the Sunday morning per se that does that. It's the Monday through Saturday that does that. And then those individuals come with you to Sunday morning experience because you've been engaging them in spiritual conversation throughout the week. Now, I must throw out this little stat that's very alarming. The 2017 Pew Research found that 22.8% of the American population, you may want to write this down, 22.8% of the American population they now classify themselves as unaffiliated. I'm talking about religious now. When they looked at, let's look at the religious. Where do people stand religiously? Some are Buddhists, some are Catholics, some are Protestants, some are, are uh, Muslims. Where do people stand religiously in the American landscape? Pew, in 2017, said 22.8% of American population classify themselves as unaffiliated the other word they use is nuns, N-O-N-E-S. We are not affiliated nuns. We don't put ourselves in any religious position or classification. And so this includes atheists and agnostics. But this number is growing. When you look back in the 1990s and you look even to 2018 and beyond in terms of data, the number has grown to about 24% now. So this category of unaffiliated people religiously is growing in our country. The question, though, and I pushed and said, let me parse out this data to try to understand why are people becoming more unaffiliated in terms of their religious position or openness to the gospel? Here is what Pew discovered. 60% of these unaffiliated people, they say the number one reason why they are not affiliated with any religious position is because, quote, the questioning of religious teachings is very important reason for their lack of affiliation. What does that mean? Nobody's answering my spiritual questions, so I'm not affiliating myself with anybody. So in other words then, the church is guilty of helping people become more atheistic and more agnostic in their views. What does that mean for me? It means then that my preaching must be informed to answer people's spiritual questions. Does God exist? Why is Jesus, quote unquote, the only way? If God was good, why does evil exist? Is there life after death? These questions, if, we, if they remain unanswered, 
they perpetuate and increase the number of unaffiliated people in a country. They increase the atheists and increase the number of agnostics. It's not because there are no answers, because our preaching oftentimes doesn't have those kinds of apologetic, that's from the Greek word apologia, that defending the faith. It doesn't offer answers to people to equip the congregation. So now every sermon that I preach, in my, if I ever show you my notes, you'll see a section in each sermon. I don't care what the sermon may be, even if it's on tithing. I'm going to put a piece in there on apologetics. Where I'm defending the faith, I'm equipping people to answer people's questions that's germane to that topic, but connects with a larger question that they're struggling with. So it changes the way I preach. Why? Because I need the congregation. You are the greatest marketing team for agape. Forget all the flyers. 86% of people that become part of a local church, they come through friends and family. 86%. 6% because of the pastor. That shoots a hole in my ego. It has nothing to do with me, or I should say very little to do with me. It has to do with you. They don't know me. They know you. Your friends know you. They trust you. They don't trust me. They don't know me. Your family knows you. They trust you. They don't know me. They know you. You become the greatest advertisement. So that means that I have to equip you to answer their questions in a conversational way, not a formal preaching way, but in a conversational way. You're at the dinner table. They ask you questions. I don't, I don't believe in God any longer. Why not? Because you know, I prayed and he never answered my, my prayers. And you can't just say you need to believe in him or else you don't believe in him. You've got to move out of this house. No, that, that's not apologetics. That's, I mean, come on, you, you haven't answered their question. You, have not, you, you don't want to grapple with the, the question. That means you have to study and understand. See, apologetics is that when you come up with answers for questions, because these questions will always be asked, and you have to have answers, and you contextualize it into your language. In terms, when I say language, your words that you use, your framework of thinking. So it's this way you can respond to them, because they'll always ask those questions. Giving out gospel tracts, that doesn't work any longer. That used to work in the 1950s. That doesn't work. So you got to understand what works. If we're going to be culturally relevant, we have to scratch where they itch. And so you can't scratch where you want them to itch. I mean, sometimes my back is itching me. I ask my wife, honey, can you scratch right over here? I say, and I'm trying to be very exact. Now, she's the artist. I'm the scientist. I say, two inches to your left. And she goes two and a half. I said, that's too far. Moving along to a half inch to the right. Then she gets frustrated. She says, scratch your own back. I forget you. <laughs> so the intent is that we have to see that we have to scratch where people itch, not where we want them to itch. I want you to itch here. And many times we as a congregation, we get guilty of projecting onto the church what they, we want them to preach based on how we respond. And so we want you to preach on things that's going to make us, man, we want to swing off the chandelier today. I've been going through a lot on my job. My boss is driving me crazy. So when you preach about you're the head and not the tail, that's stay right there, preacher. You're on it right now. That's where I am. So now I'm forced to stay there. So if I want to talk to you about how to share your faith with, 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 with unbelievers, you're, you're sitting there staring me down saying, why are you talking to me about that? Don't you know I'm being bothered on the job by those unbelievers? So why do I want to share my faith with them? I don't want them to be in heaven with me. I mean, so we're having all kinds of thoughts. So I want us to start rethinking the role that we play. And so we as pastors have to learn how to say, look, I understand you have needs, but please 
Let me shepherd the entire church so you can be an effective Christian in the global society. Let's continue. Fourth practice that we need to have in the church, if we're going to be a growing church, is caring relationships. And what I mean by caring relationships is that when you do, if you come here on a Sunday morning, let's, I'm looking at all these chairs. There's no way that each person that will fit and sit in one of these chairs on a Sunday morning will feel cared for on a personal level. You can't. It's impractical. Therefore, the church must have small groups that meet so that we can feel cared for. So in other words, small groups, whether you call them life groups, whether you call them cell groups, whether you, it may be a department, the ushers, or it may be whatever, excuse me, whatever small group, there must be, excuse me, there must be small groups that meet regularly. Why? So someone knows who I am. And someone knows what my needs are, and I know what their needs are. Someone knows what my favorite food is, and I know what theirs is. Someone knows what my wife's name is and, and where she works, and I know the same about them. Someone knows the names of my kids and how old they are. That's what it means, it means to be cared for. Someone knows when I'm not acting myself. Hey, I, I know you've been very quiet. What's going on, man? Oh, everything's okay. No, 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 no. I, I know you. You're not. That's what is needed. See, that's a community. It's where the deepest thing in you connects with the deepest thing in me. It's a place of realism. It's where I can let my guards down and let you into my life, and we do life together. So we need that. If the church doesn't have that, it will not grow. In fact, the studies are very alarming. If a person stays here for six months and they don't make six friends, they leave. You can have the greatest preaching, greatest worship, but if they don't make six friends in six months, they're gone. So the church must be sticky. Sticky that when you, you touch it, boom, I'm stuck to you. I, I can't shake you. Not a nuisance, not a bother, but hey, I, I just, there's something about you. I just, I just, I like you in my life. And I like being in your life. So caring relationships. So we have to work on that. Fifth is contributing role. That means gift-oriented ministry development. When I say contributing role is that I stay in the local church because I contribute to the welfare of the local church. And I'm not just talking about financially. I'm talking about by way of service, by way of function, by way of gifting. That my gifts, you need me. Because I have gifts that you need. And you have gifts that I need. So we need each other. And so in order for the church to grow numerically, I want you to help me identify what gifts I have. Because I don't know what gifts I have. And so when I understand the gifts that I have, then I'm going to feel a part of. And everybody has gifts. Sometimes we don't recognize it readily, but they all have gifts. And so I want you to see that there must be, we use different survey methods, different ways to analyze and assess and evaluate people's giftings so they can identify it. Because we want people to know how God has wired them. I mean, Romans 12 lists for us, verse 6 through verse 10, the motivational gifts. You have the gift of giving, gift of leadership, gift of teaching, gift of hospitality. These are gifts wired in a person's motivation and psyche and the fabric of who they are. It just comes out naturally. You may say, even you look at little kids and you say, the kid's bossy. Now, that's the gift of leadership. You just need to hone it, develop it, tame it so that they won't run amok trying to run the household in their seven. They're trying to tell you what to do. They tell <laughs> one father said that his little boy, like five years old, looked at him and said, Dad, 
And the father jumped, jumped back. <laughs> what in the world? Five-year-old jumping at me. I mean, it was just crazy. <laughs> but I want you, the gift identification piece, our job is to help people identify themselves, their gifts, discover it, and then point them in a direction where they can use it. And when they do that, they complete us. Six is a changeable structure. This is very critical now. Dr. Eddie Gibbs, many years ago, when he wrote this book, he was able to distinguish these five functions of the lead pastor based on the size of their church. If the numerical size between 2 and 65, the pastor tends to be a foreman, part of the work gang. Between 66 and 150, and these are not exact numbers. Now we got 67, but he's still functioning like a foreman. No, these are not, it's not hard, fast numbers like that, but it's a range. 66 to 150, this lead pastor functions as a supervisor. And I'm talking about the, the, the structures that flow under this, and I'll unpack that in a minute. 151 to 449, senior pastor is functioning as a middle management role. Full-time staff is essential. 450 to 1,000, top management role is the function of the senior pastor. Full-time staff are critical, and they operate at middle management position. When it's over 1,000 people, the senior pastor functions as the chairman of the board. They dream dreams, capture vision, sensitive to what's happening at the grassroots level. Now, you may say, well, how does this translate practically? Let's look at it. Let's assume that I'm the senior pastor. The church is ABC Church. We're all part of this ABC Church. Got it? What's the name of our church? ABC Church. Church. Thank you. And we're 50 people in size. This is the sanctuary we meet. And it needs to be painted. And I say to folks, hey, folks, we're going to have a painting party on Saturday. Next Saturday, we're going to have a painting party. I want as many of you that can come and help me paint the sanctuary because we need to have a nice home. Come on out on Saturday. Meet me here at 9 a.m., and I'll go out, I'll go to the hardware store, I'll buy the paint, I'll buy the drop cloths, I'll buy all the paint brushes, I'll get the music and get the, you know, the music players, all that stuff. I'll get the stuff, Dunkin' Donuts, I'll get the coffee, I'll get all that stuff because my job is to be foreman. And so when we get here at 9 o'clock, I'm saying, you know, Alice, could you do this? You know, hey, hey Ken, can you do that? And I start, you know, uh, delegating responsibility. But I got my old jeans on, my old T-shirt on, and so I'm painting this, this section. And then about an hour go by, and I walk around to make sure everybody's doing the right thing. I say, hey, you missed a spot over there. Get that. Would you do that? touch that up? And then we finish around 12 o'clock. Boom, we break. We, I thank everybody. We're gone. Fast forward now. Two years later, the church is now 80 people. My job is supervisor. So I say to Kenny, hey, Kenny, you've been around for a while. I, I need you to go, to go to the hardware store. Here's a check, you know, here's the, you know, a credit card, and I want you to go to the hardware store. I want you to pick up five gallons of paint because we need to paint the sanctuary. Man, uh, people are messy. The sanctuary needs to be repainted again. And, uh, and Alice, could you go and, and pick up some stuff from Dunkin' Donuts and coffee and donuts? And, 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 and Mary, could you get uh, the music? I know you always like music. Get some music that'll last for a couple hours. And I say to the church, hey, everybody on Saturday, we're going to have a painting party. I need you to come on down, as many of you, at 9 a.m. We're going to finish around 1 in the afternoon, and we're going to 
paint our sanctuary. We need it to look good for the glory of God. Everybody claps. And then, you know, I, I say, you know, Ken, thank you. I go down there at 9 o'clock. Ken's there. Boom. He got all the paint. Got the drop cloths. Mary and the others, they got all the stuff. And so I'm there and I get everybody started. I sectionalize. I say, okay, Ken's going to give you some guidance. And then I go back into my office and I'm studying up, make sure my sermon's prepped for Sunday. I come out every hour, hour, hour and a half, see how things are doing. I say, Ken, how's everything going? Man, it looks good, Pastor. It looks good. We're doing well. Appreciate it, Ken. Thank you, man. Love you, brother. Go back into my office. <laughs> Fast forward now. Three years later, the church is 400 people. And, and Ken's still around. I said, Ken, man, I, I really appreciate you. Ken, what do you think? Do you think that... The sanctuary needs painted? Yeah, it's been on my mind. I'll, I'll take care of it for you, Pastor. I said, okay, here's, here's a credit card. Just, just take care of it. Ken gets up and he makes the announcement. Everybody, we're going to have a painting party on Saturday. I mean, we, we need this church. This is our church. This is our church. I remember what God's done. And you may be new here, but we're going to have a painting party on Saturday. And I'm going to make sure all the paint's here. I need you to come at 9 a.m. sharp. And we're going to walk out of here at 1 o'clock. We're going to have a brand new looking sanctuary. Come on. And then so Ken has gotten other people. And this, he got this person to go and get the coffee and donuts. He got that person to go and get, you know, get the music. And, and Ken went and picked up you know, the, you know, the 10 gallons of paint. It got dirtier. And so, and so here you know, they, they show up. I don't even come. And on Sunday, I look around and say, man, Ken, you and the team, you did a great job. Congregation, let's give all those who labored and made our church look so good. Let's give them a round of applause. Boom. I want you to see the difference. Now, the church is now fast forward. Three years later, the church is 800 people. Top management. Ken's on staff. One of Ken's functions facilities. Ken has this thing on such a systematic process that he knows every two years we paint the sanctuary. I'm just looking, I'm walking out on a Sunday one day, and I just finished praying for some people. I'm walking back to my office, and I just, man, look, looks, doesn't look good. I don't even have to say anything. Ken, he had it, it was already slated. It's in the calendar for two weeks from now. And Ken, Ken just took care of the whole thing. Do you see the difference? And so Ken had a whole team under him. Fast forward, the church is now 1,500. I, I, I don't even see the problem. <laughs> see, let me tell you the mindset now of what has to happen. Because I have to change all those stages I have to change. If I have to say something to Ken, Ken's getting fired. Because I'm saying, Ken, why am I being distracted? Why am I looking at this dirty wall that needs to be painted when you understand you have the wisdom, you have the ability, you have the budgetary responsibility of facilities and the appearance of it, I shouldn't be thinking about this. If I'm thinking about it, then I'm saying, why is Ken in that place? I'm either going to move Ken into another department or get someone else, you know, to, you know, because I can't be distracted with this minutia. Why? Because I'm dealing with marrying people, burying people. When you deal with a church with thousands of people... I can walk 20 feet. I go in one room. I'm helping eulogize a boy that's, that just died, got hit by a bus, and grieving with the family. Walk another 20 feet. I'm marrying this couple that's rejoicing. They've been living together. Now they decide to get married. I'm rejoicing with them. I walk another 20 feet. You know, I, I'm, I'm not meddling. I'm preaching. And I'm, I'm just... Uh, <laughs> 
And so I walk another 20 feet. And when I walk another 20 feet, I'm, I'm in this room here. I'm helping a business guy work through some business issues and with their family. All that within a span of just walking a couple of feet. That's what goes on. So when you deal with thousands of people, there are thousands of problems, multi-layered problems. I don't have time to think about that paint. People say, well, you're not humble. You have a ridiculous perspective. It's not an issue of humility. It's not being cocky. Who's being cocky? More people means more problems. I'm not, you know, you may say, I thought your people were following you. They're not following me. They're chasing me. I'm just, I'm running for my life. So, I mean, sometimes we're not seeing it from that perspective. You're looking at the Sunday morning. You see me stand on the stage. You say, whoa, he thinks he's somebody. No, I don't think I'm somebody. There are three ways God gets leaders. One, they're naturally born. Two, they're trained. Three, they're trapped. God traps us. Why do you think I'm here? I'm supposed to be an engineer. I'm here because he trapped me. Sometimes we forget. But I'm showing you this this structure that must take place if we're going to do and be a growing church. And each of you must see yourself growing as well. Because in order for you to get promoted, there are three people you need. If I'm going to get promoted, the person above me needs to move out of the way. The person below me needs to take my spot. There are three people. If this church is going to grow, you got to grow. You don't just say, go, pastor, grow. I just love the way he grows. He can do so much more now than he used to do. Praise God. Hope he doesn't die because if he died, who's going to do all what he's doing? See, that's how we think of it. That's not how it has to be. You got to step up and, and, and take it seriously. And you own your area of responsibilities. Don't try to run away and say, well, I just, he's not doing what he used to do. He's got to his head. He has a big head. What big head? I'm just trying to keep myself afloat. <laughs> Final thing, which is very critical. We seldom want to talk about it, but it's very necessary when it comes to church growth. It's credible stewardship. Yes, you cannot reach people that have deep pockets or experience significant financial growth if you don't engender and reflect credibility and authenticity in how you deal with finances as a church, period. Every year we have a financial audit. Outside CPA firm comes in, white gloves, make sure everything's right, cross T's, dot I's. We publish our annual report to our, our congregation, give them access to it online where they can see where they, their money went. Got nothing to hide. And we tell them, like, if you have any questions about the finance of our church, make an appointment with our CFO. If you don't understand financial documents, get your CPA to come with you and sit down with our CFO and, and answer and get the questions answered. In 33 years of pastoral ministry, I've made that statement, and not one person has taken me up on it. Because you know, see, if if you're carrying yourself in an authentic way and in an honest way, people people like that. But if you're shady, they don't, I mean, you should be shady with your own money, not with God's money. <laughs> not with God's people's money. Come on. If, if, you you got to make sure you have clean hands. And that's how it works. And so you cultivate an atmosphere 
and a culture in the congregation of financial, financial honesty and integrity and transparency. And people appreciate that. All right? So seven church growth practices that I present to you today. I understand, then you may have some questions, or, okay, so I assume someone's going to float with the mic, and if you have a question, raise your hand, yeah. and I'll attempt to answer it. If I can't answer it, then, hey, your question is a good one, <laughs> or it's a bad one. <laughs> yes, there's a mic right next to you. Thanks for that. Um, I guess my question is around top management, when yes. we talk about changeable structure. Yes. How do we help leaders release some of the responsibility of previous structures? Good question. I think there are a couple of ways you can do that. One is that you can present to them a proposal that outlines, when I, that, that outlines the new structure, the proposed structure. As a leader, I hold on to things if I feel like the people around me are not competent enough, competent enough to take it. Some people talk a good talk. And so I tell them that for me to trust your leadership, I want to see proven results. Show me what you've done your, with your area of responsibility, and I'll feel more trust, trustworthy towards you. Same way, if I have a problem not releasing, and it has nothing to do with the trustworthiness of the person, then show me the proposal and then say, can you give me 60 days to handle it this way and see the results, and then report back to you if you don't see improvement. Those kinds of, you know, Tests and trials would always help. Okay? Someone else with a question? Um, so, um, thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Um, so, with the church structure, um, how do you manage people's expectations for a church with a changeable structure? And I say this especially for sometimes I've seen cases where, let's say, a church is a 500-member church and somebody comes in. They still want that personal relationship with the pastor and they go, okay, you know, the pastor didn't do this. The pastor was not there when we were having. So, how do you manage that, especially for Good. people who are just coming into a church? Good question. And I think that's why I can't let the congregation define my role as a pastor and so I have to say publicly I have to say that what's important in our church is not that you and I may have this deep close personal relationship but is that you do have a deep close relationship my role is to shepherd the entire congregation and not just simply you know one or two and so the way the best way I shepherd is I shepherd the leaders and the leaders shepherd the people if something doesn't work, whether you're going through counseling with a specific leader and that person's not able to help you, then they'll always confer upward and direct you to someone that can help you. And if it ultimately can't get to any of them, then that's when I may step in. But So I have to have that kind of conversation with the church, not in a way that makes them feel unimportant or devalued, but in a way that says, in our church, the most important thing is that Jesus knows who you are. And that you are cared for in a personalized way. And don't feel that it necessarily has to be with me. Because if you do feel that way, it makes our church dysfunctional. And then I let people know that if you're here for David Ireland, then it's called idol worship. If you're here for Jesus, then it's Jesus worship. Okay. Another question? 
Thank you, Pastor. Um, so I'm taking you back to creative evangelism. And my question to is... To where? Creative evangelism. Where yes, creative evangelism. Regard, okay. Regarding cultural relevance. How, how um, are you able to adapt to the culture of a vicinity without losing yourself or just being overly conscious of how it should be? A good question. I think that... What I do and what I've done and what I have to keep doing is always have focus groups. So I'll ask, let's say there's a demographic that I'm not effective in reaching or relating to. So I'll have a focus group with that demographic to try to find out what do I need to change, adjust in order to be more effective with you. And I may not be the one that holds that, that meeting. I have point someone that understands how to collect social data and be able to have those kinds of dialogues. In other words, I'm going to ask questions like, let's say I'm trying to reach millennials. Do you feel that this is your church or your parents' church? So, and, and I want to hear the responses. I won't ask them directly because they're going to tell me things that they think I want to hear. I want to have someone else do it. So I'm not, you know, slanting the data. Then I make adjustments. Sometimes it's very uncomfortable. And so it takes time to learn. So, it, you know, so that it does take an adjustment. So, but I have to be willing to make the adjustment. That's what growth is. Because if I stay, you know, one of the quotes I saw, if you stay in your comfort zone, you'll never grow. So I have to do things that's daring and risky. And sometimes I may flop. And sometimes I'd rather flop having tried than not tried at all. And so it, it does require that. Okay? Good question. Yeah, let's. Okay, you have the mic. Uh, uh, okay, the question is about when you are introducing new things, like the change in time of worship or the length of the worship. What's the reaction of your leaders? Because sometimes, if it's not broken, why are you trying to fix it? Well, I have to. I'm, I'm not going to make a drastic change unless I. I would have talked people through it over time particularly for things that are controversial or things that may be problematic. I want to let them air their views. And I may say things within the context of my sermon that may be found in, let's say, for example, this 2017 Pew Research found, finding on the unaffiliated, character, unaffiliated category of 22.8% 8, of, of Americans say that they're unaffiliated. I may say, do you realize that we're growing the amount of atheists and agnostics and nuns in the country by preaching style? I wonder what I have to change in order to be able to reduce that. And I wonder how you have to change your diet of sermon so we can reach those kinds of people. What are you willing to give up so we can be effective? I leave it like that. Then, you know, three months later, and I'm dropping things like that. Three months later, when I want to introduce change, <laughs> you have already got stuff inside of you over the past three months that you didn't realize I was strategically helping you process something that needs to be processed without it being combative or being drastic. When you're driving on the highway, Garden State Parkway, you'll see, let's say, the you know, exit 145, two miles ahead. Keep going. Exit 145, one mile. And if I'm getting off at exit 145, I've been forewarned two miles. And then one mile, so now I'm, I'm merged into the right lane. So when I get off the highway, there's no drastic change, no drastic turn. I've been prepared. 
We have to do the same thing when we preach and teach and do ministry, prepare people. And oftentimes we've been processing something emotionally they have not been. And so we have not given them time and space. And so we're angry at them now when they don't, they're not where we are emotionally. Because we have been cultivating and stewing over it and thinking about it and reading about it and praying about it and, you know, and, and going all that and maybe even having conversations about it, but they have not. And so we've introduced something to them and then we say, okay, come on, get on the bandwagon. If you're not following me, you're not of God. Now why, why do you do that? See, you, you're creating unnecessary tension because your practice has not been a wise practice. Okay? Yes. So two more questions and, you know, and then we cut it off for break. All right? You're one, and then the lady in the back. Okay. Yes. Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Ma many churches are multi-ethnic yes. organically, but for churches that are typically not, how does that church begin the process of morphing, so to say, or evolving, it's, or it, becoming a, a multi? I know, I know it's very nuanced. You no, know, no, no, I understand but, uh, the question. Okay. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'll give you a technical answer, then I'll give you a practical answer. There are four reasons why the church becomes cross-racial or multiracial. Four reasons. There's a principle called the social exchange theory. And I'm not trying to get overly technical. I did want to see that. Social exchange theory. That theory says the only reason why I'm going to cross over my culture and my ethnicity to come into yours is I gain something from your world that I can't gain from my own. So it's a, what's referred to as a macro-sociological principle. In other words, I gain something from it. There's, some, there's a gain I'm getting from being in your world. Now, four reasons. One, the sovereignty of God. Azusa Street, 1906, the revival where it was multiracial. People came together you know, in, there in, uh, in uh, California because of the overwhelming presence of God. I can't control the sovereignty. Sovereignty means the independence of God. God does what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. I have no control over that. All I can do is respond to it. The other three I have influence over. The other three reasons why the church becomes cross-racial or trans-ethnic. Yeah. Second is the worship experience. Something happens in that worship experience that's so transformative that I'll drive by 100 churches where everybody looks like me to come into your world because I gained something from the worship experience that I can't gain from my own people. Third, the sense of community. When I go, I drive by a hundred churches, everybody looks like me to go into your world where, where when I'm there, I gain something from the community. I feel like I belong. I mean, it's not that there's no, there's nothing that you're doing specifically, but when I'm there, I just feel like I'm part of that. And I'll rather be there than with my own people because when I'm with you and that congregation, I feel a sense of deep belonging. Fourth reason, the pastor, not the preaching, the person. Something flows out of that person's life that's so transformative that I want to be there. So I'll drive by 100 churches where everybody looks like me. Now, let me tell you where I'm getting the information from. I did my doctoral dissertation on the black-white relationship in large multiracial churches in America. So I went across the country studying churches that were cross-racial. And so I looked, I looked at two categories, churches that's over 1,000, under 1,000, two categories of races, whites and blacks. When a white person had a church that was multiracial, defining multiracial as at least 11% of the congregations of a different racial makeup than the majority, 
And then when I met with in that, that church where white senior pastor, you know, multiracial congregation, I would ask to meet with the African-Americans. Two focus groups. A focus group is a technical term. It means anywhere from 8 to 12 people that you would meet with for 60 to 90 minutes around a question that you can't find an answer to in any book. Now, when you do a doctoral dissertation, I know there's some of you in this room with terminal degrees, a doctoral dissertation means that you've read every technical book, every technical journal article about your subject in the world on that topic. And so what you're adding to is a sentence into the academic world on your topic. So that means that my topic is on the issue of cross-race relationships, particularly within the context of church. And so when I met with individuals in those, in, in those churches, met with African-Americans, with white senior pastor, asking questions like, why are you here? What's, you know, what keeps you here? What attracted you? And each of those churches have a 30-minute gap, meet with another group for 90 minutes, asking the same question. It was uncanny. Every one of those churches, the answer that, uh, that rose to the surface was those four reasons why I gave you. Yes. Now, you yeah. Okay. Well, get, let me just make sure you're hearing. I mean, I, before you mentioned those four, I really didn't have any kind of deep thought about it. Okay. As you mentioned it, I was just thinking internally, I know that's right. I, I felt that way. I, I understand that. So it's something instinctively that I know. Okay. And I think that that's so true. When the senior pastor was white, I met with blacks. When the senior pastor was blacks, black, I met with whites. Same situation. And it was the uncanny thing is every one of those churches, it was one of those three reasons. The worship experience, sense of community and belonging, or the pastor. It was never two. It was always one of those. So to answer your question is this. How does a church that may be monoethnic become multi-ethnic? How does a church that's monoracial become multiracial? How does a church that's monocultural become multicultural? The answer is the same. And here's the answer. When you answer this question, you'll have your answer. Why should I come to your church when I'm not of your culture or not of your race or not of your ethnicity? What will I gain from being in your world that I can't gain from being in my own? When you answer that question, you'll have your answer. Now, there are lots of things you do practically for that to occur, but you have to start off. I also had to do more technical things like, uh, uh, like dealing with, uh, you know, I'm trying to get the right academic term, but what is the impact of the church's racial composition based on the senior pastor's public stance on, on diversity? There was, this, there was a dynamic impact. When the senior pastor stood up and said, I welcome people in our church of different races, and this is my theological position and the way I function in my life personally, and I want to see our church reflect you know, this, this mosaic. It had a direct correlation on the racial hue of that church. I wanted you to, you know, to see these things real. I'm sorry, last question. I can get on this topic you know, for hours. I've written a bunch of books on it. You know, the last one is called One in Christ, what it means to bridge relationships with people that are different than yourself. And by the way, my house was firebombed, racially motivated when I was 10 years old. And so most people think that when I talk about diversity, they say, oh, you never went through anything. Oh, yeah, I, I, there, there, there's six levels of prejudice. 
It's not just, you know, Dr. Gordon Alport, prolific sociologist at Harvard University, spent his whole academic life studying prejudice. And he realized that in his book, The Nature of Prejudice, he talks about the six levels of prejudice. First level is simply, you know, alienation, where I just disconnect myself from you physically, socially. The sixth level, and it progressively gets worse, is ethnic cleansing. It's victimization where you're wiping out the whole group of people that look a certain way. So, you know, I was at that, you know, at, at level five, which is the victimization level. So I understand the pain associated with it, but that doesn't mean that you have to stay there. You can be healed, and God can use you as an authentic reconciler. Well, enough on that. Here's the last question, and then we're, we're going to move on. Okay. Uh, I'll yes. try to keep it brief. So at the beginning, you mentioned the importance of being self-aware yes. and not limiting your mind to just the confines of the church and being able to operate in the marketplace. So my question is, what kind of advice would you give in trying to be a bridge between the marketplace and the church? You know, still operating in the marketplace and still able to bring people with you into the church. Because it's easy to kind of lose yourself sometimes in the marketplace, right? Yes. So how can you maintain that balance? I think that you have to have, as the question tells me that you're on the right track. There should always be tension in your life. The presence of tension says, I'm conscious that I don't want to get lost in one world and neglect the other. That's healthy. Then I need to have feeding spots in both worlds. That means that there are things going on in both of those arenas that feed my soul. There's a satisfaction I gain from the work of my hands and mind. That's what Ecclesiastes tells me, that that's part of the, my inheritance, to have joy from the work of my hands and mind. And then also there's a satisfaction in my, in my delight in serving God and serving the local church. And, you know, so I should be able to find that. When I neglect one over the other, then there's something wrong. So tension is healthy. Mentors in both worlds are important. Okay? So I hope that helps you. Well, praise God. Pastor? Okay, um. Wow, let's give God a glory again. Hallelujah. Yes. Praise God. Thank you, Dr. Ireland, for that.